0: and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As we turn to Psalm 19, would you join me in just praying that last line? Together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, and may the meditations of our hearts together as we circle around and gather around your word be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, our Redeemer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Job 39.1, straight from the scripture, it seems like a strange question. I think I could give you the context, and I'm still not sure I can convince you that it's still not kind of a strange question. Like You think about the book of Job, and, and Satan appears before the Lord. Starts to question God and kind of in a sense puts God on trial like well I don't know if Job will really think you're good if you take some things away from him and the Lord allows those things to happen And all through the book of Job you have Job wondering and, and trying to figure out what's going on here Why am I being exposed to all this stuff? Why am I suffering the way that I am? I just want to talk to the Lord about this and the Lord comes and he talks to him and he asks him questions like that like you got, you you could throw out I mean like if I if I'm addressing what satan has accused god of and and what he's trying to do there or if i'm thinking about job and how to tenderly kind of care for him like the question i'm not thinking of or throwing out is do you know when the mountain goats give birth but that's exactly what god does and i just get like god is that really what you want to go with there out of of all that's gone on in the book of job you want to go with that question And, and he doesn't just do that right His first question that he asked Job is, where were you? Again, like, not an assertion, here's what I am, here's what I'm doing, but where were you? And then he goes throughout, you know, mountain goats, he talks about ostriches, He, he goes all over the place, and he speaks a lot about nature. It's interesting when God speaks to Job that he asks him questions about things that are evident in creation. He does that in order to justify his ways and to establish before Job and all the hearers of that word that he is God. He establishes that I'm God and you're not, and my ways are just by taking him to creation. General revelation, what could be seen by everybody. But Job is interesting, right? Because he, he asks him questions about. Creation, things that are generally revealed to all and the things that have been made, but it comes through the means of special revelation. God directly speaking to Job. He is talking to Job. And, and what Job does so beautifully is is it puts those two together for us. When God speaks, he, makes, he puts the light on, here's what is going on in creation, Job. And those two go together to both humble Job, to where he says, to put my hand over my mouth and to help him to see and understand the greatness and the glory of God. And that is Psalm 19's aim as well. God in Psalm 19 he puts these two books, the the book of general revelation in creation and the book of special revelation in his word together to help his people, to humble his people, so that his people would see his glory. God has given us both the book of general revelation, the book of creation, and the book of special revelation, the scripture, the the word of God, that we might behold his glory and respond to it. In Psalm 19, it calls for God's people to, to take a look at general revelation and to trace it back to its source, God himself. And it calls God's people to to take a look at special revelation in His Word and to treasure it and to taste it so that we might see and know and savor the glory of God found there and respond to those revelations of God with our very being, with all that we are. Psalm 19, what it does is it immediately draws readers into a bigger picture and a bigger story in the book of creation. Verse 1 says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. The day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. David, he he looks at the heavens, he looks at the sky, he he considers day and night with all of the wonder and the splendor that are contained within those very realities and things, with all the the splendor included in those and he says all of that points to God. God. One author says that every plant, every atom, as well as every star at the first meeting whispers this in our ears, I have a creator. I am witness to a deity. David says in verse 1, like the heavens are declaring something, they're witnessing something, they're preaching something, they're pronouncing a message to everyone. The sky is preaching, God made me. This morning, perhaps you walk into this room and you're not convinced that there is even a God. Or maybe you know someone that you're trying to convince, you're trying to talk to and share the truth with, and they're not convinced that there's even a God. Here's what Psalm 19 invites us to consider. Consider this book of general revelation. Consider creation, because what creation is in and of itself, it is communication from God. God. It's not God, but it reveals God. And the immensity of creation shares something with us, doesn't it? The immensity of the heavens. Think about this. The the Hubble telescope sends back images of galaxies that are estimated at 12 billion light years away. That's a waste. And so like when you're thinking about the, the greatness of all that has been created, we're just in a tiny little corner of it, taking up a tiny minuscule amount of space in light of all that God has created. Think about the variety of the sky and how the sky might be proclaiming something. Like the variety that you see in the sky, how it changes day to day. Have you ever seen a, a duplicate sky? Well, maybe sometimes when it's only gray, or when it's like burning hot outside and it's only like, okay, this, the sky has no clouds and there's nothing to shade us from the sun. Maybe it feels the same, but often the hues of the sky are different. The clouds are shaped differently. They're moving differently, different directions. The, the wind moves and shapes different things. It feels different. Sometimes it's really humid. Sometimes it's not and everything in between. Sometimes it sounds a little bit differently outside and then you get thunder and all these other crazy things that happen in the sky. Think about the order of days and nights and how it just keeps happening. Like we don't know. Time just keeps moving in one direction and there's day and then there's night and then there's another day and it just over and over again and what David says is that every single one of those things is whispering, it is displaying, it is declaring the glory of God. Proverbs says, hey guys, consider the ant. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, hey everybody, let's consider the lilies. Job is told to consider all kinds of things, right? Where and when the mountain goats give birth. Apparently that's a relevant question for him to consider and for us. He's told to consider God's work and God himself. I like what one ancient theologian, Augustine, said when he said, Some people read books in order to find God. Yet there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above you, look below you, note it, read it. God, whom you wish to find, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he had made. And so what's on us then, what's on us is to open that book up, to look at it, to hear from it, to note it, to read the truth that creation is declaring to us, the truth about God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. They, they don't merely declare God as creator. that They are showing us some of the end of all creation. They are showing us something about this creator. In verse 1, it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So creation is communicating, and it is communication that declares God is not just creator, but he's a glorious creator, declaring the glory of God, and it's giving us the ultimate purpose of all creation, what, what is the reason for creation? What is the reason for the skies and the, and the heavens? It's, it's the glory of God. That is the end and the purpose of all created things. The glory of God. Summed up in that phrase, the glory of God. What's the purpose of everything? What's everything all about? It's all about God's glory. David, he's a man who reads the, the law of God, the word of God. The first five books of the Old Testament is what he would have had available to him. He would have read Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he looks at those and he pours over those, meditating on them day and night. And what does he say about those? What's his conclusion that he draws? From those five books that everything is about God's glory. That the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Everything is made for him and by him to show forth his excellencies and his greatness. And what he knows this does, and what it does all through the scriptures, is it cuts at The roots of idolatry. To worship the created as glorious. When those created things themselves are declaring something else is glorious, is folly. And idolatry, what it does is it puts something other than God at the center of life. It says that life is is about something other than God and His glory. It says that, that, that the purpose and the end for which we've been created is about something different than God and His glory. It could say it's all about me or it's all about that thing and that thing, whatever that thing is, is always something created and that created thing itself is telling something better than that. It is saying that God is glorious and the end of all things is about the glory of God. It is telling us, verse 3, everywhere to all and he says there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world a voice is going out another translation you might have is measuring line in other words what it's saying it's going out to the end of the earth there's no boundary for this there's no place where this voice isn't heard There's no line that marks it off and says you can't uh, testify or declare the glories of God any further. It's everywhere. There's this line maybe it could be talking about between day and night. And it's saying even if that's the line that it's talking about, it's still declaring the glory of God. In other words, everyone experiences day and night. Everyone is hearing this speech. Everyone is hearing these words. It's going out to all. All are exposed to it. In the end of verse 4, he says, In them... In the skies and the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What a picture that David sets up before us here. He's like, let's just imagine there's a tent in the sky, and this tent in the sky, how you can see day and night like the the sun dips behind the tent it's night right he comes back out from the tent it's day but that's not exactly what the sun is doing right he's not just coming out he's coming out like a bridegroom bridegrooms come out with eagerness hopefully right they come out ready they're they are excited this is the day it's finally arrived and boom they come out with great joy that's what the sun is doing and not just a bridegroom but a strong man running Like if you've trained and you've prepared and you're ready, like you're strong, you want to like, let's do this. And you you run with endurance, you're ready to tackle what's in front of you. And that's the picture of the sun. It's a picture of eagerness and joy and strength without any sense of reluctance or tiring. And what is it having a, a, a message and course to do to declare without tiring, with great eagerness, with great joy, that God is glorious. That's what the sun is doing in the skies and he says that nothing and no one is hidden from its message. It is declaring that message to all. No one is hidden from its heat. It is going out to all. All are meant to hear it. All are meant to see it. All are meant to read it. As one goes to a palace and they might think, wow, this is ornate and beautiful and perfect for functioning in a you know, immaculate way, and you might think, like, this is great. Who, who in the world could make something like this, that it all fits together like this, that it's this beautiful? As one goes to, uh, or eats a perfect steak and thinks, man, who could, who, who could cook this just to perfection like this? Or, or you hear some music or look at art, and you think, hey, who in the world could put all these things together in this way? So, too, creation is pointing us beyond itself to the one behind it, to God. How do we get there? How do we move from just thinking about the thing itself to the one behind it? By looking at creation itself and just tracing its source back up to God. By not stopping at considering and thinking and hearing from created things, but moving to the creator. That is, we're not just going to be looking at created things, but looking along created things to God. This is how C.S. Lewis spoke about this at one time. He uses this example of being in the tool shed. He said, I was standing today in the dark tool shed and the sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. And from where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it. This is what he sees and takes in. He said, Then I moved so that that beam fell on my eyes. And I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, Green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond. That 90 odd million miles away sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And what Psalm 19 is inviting us into, what creation itself is inviting us into, is not just to look at itself, but to look along it all the way up to its source. And looking at and looking along are different. So don't stop at creation. Don't stop with created things. Trace those back to the source. Look along those things all the way up to the source and what? Does he say you're going to find? If you trace along, if you look along, created things, you're going to see the glory of God. Look at creation and be amazed at its wonders, for sure. Be astounded by its splendor. Like when you go to a mountain and you go to the Grand Canyon, you see the stars at night. You should be astounded rightly by the immensity and greatness and vastness of all of God's creation. But please don't just stop there. Keep going and look along those things to what Psalm 19 says will be their God and a glorious creator, God. And when you do that, when you go all the way to the source and trace it to the source, then all looking becomes a looking along. Right? You, you look at the stars and you say, wow, but you can't stop there. You say, wow, those are glorious. God is glorious. Wow, this stake is good. Wow, God Is good. Wow, that music is beautiful. Wow, God is beautiful. We're meant to be people who are tracing creation back to its creator and not just tracing it to him, but ascribing him honor and thanks and worth because of what he has made and because of what it says about him as a glorious God. And that's what creation is communicating. All are meant to see along it and to honor God from it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, his glory, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so, where is it evident? Where is it being declared? In creation. We can know something of the greatness of this God. What can be known about God is plain, he says. God has shown it to all. Where? In the book of creation. The book of general revelation that's available to all, that nothing, no one is hidden from. So, like Job, we we don't need a miracle. God didn't come and show Job a miracle. We don't need to necessarily, and thank God for this, go to a mountain to see these things because there are none near. As much as we don't like that. We we don't need God to visibly appear so that we might behold some of his glory or to know that he's glorious. We look at his creation and we look along his creation and we can affirm all of those things and give thanks and honor to God for those things. Look up at the sky and look along it, tracing it back to God because it's declaring something about him. Now, this book of general revelation is really clear. It is declaring a very clear message, the glory of God. But it is not an exhaustive revelation, right? It doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't tell us everything about God. You might get from creation that there is a God. You should. You're intended to. But you wouldn't know much about this God. What kind of God is he? It wouldn't draw you necessarily into the right kind of relationship with God. And we know that this declaration from the heavens is a declaration that will be ignored, will be suppressed, Paul says in Romans 1. Creation's message of the glory of God, of His greatness, is going to fall on deaf ears, but it is not alone in revealing God and His glories. We have the the book of general revelation in creation, and we have the book of special revelation given to us in His Word, and that's where David turns in verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So here in verse 7, we've shifted from David exulting in creation, what the heavens are declaring, to exulting in this revelation in the word what God has declared in the word. He's exulting from the book of general revelation and then he exults in the book of special revelation. In verses one through six, we have heaven declaring the glory of God and and there was only God mentioned one time and that was in verse one and it's the most general, least specific identifier of God, the word used. In verses seven through 14, we have something different, don't we? He doesn't say God He gets more specific than that, and he does it more times than that. In verses 7 through 14, he he mentions the Lord, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and he uses it seven times. So we can only get, in a sense, even in that, we can see we can only get so far with general revelation. We're going to need more. We're going to need special revelation, and he gives it to us, and it reveals to us not just a God, but the Lord. General revelation gets you to God, maybe, that there is a God. Special revelation gets you to who this God is, what He is like, and what He has done. It pulls you into this personal response to a personal God. It's pulling us to and calling us to relationship with this glorious God. And so David, he comes and he celebrates creation, but even more so, he celebrates revelation in the Word because it shows not just God, but the Lord the one who has created all things. This personal God who has made himself known. And in verses 7 through 9, there's a formula that has pretty much followed all of these verses. He gets at what God's word is, and he moves to what God's word does. So you see the pattern over and over again. It's even similar number of words each time. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, there's what God's word is, is perfect. And here's what it does. It is reviving the soul. It's perfect. It's whole. It's flawless. It's blameless. Now, if you're thinking about this whole psalm, you might be think, wait, he says it's perfect, and yet we talked in verse 6 about the sun rising, and yet we're advanced now, and we know that the sun doesn't actually rise. Well, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's theories here. Right? But we'll just assume... That the sun is the center of the universe and we're revolving around it while we're rotating on our axis. And so we know from that that the sun doesn't rise, right? So how in the word, world could God's word be perfect if it's saying things like the sun rises? That's ridiculous. We, it doesn't move at all. We move around it. Well, uh, we need a right reading of God's word. right? It's In chapter 19 and in most of the Psalms, David is not trying to lay down for us and the psalmists are not trying to lay down for us a scientific textbook to tell us the, the dynamics of how this is work and how matter moves and, and, and how the orbit of the sun, you know, like he's not trying to do it. He's poetically describing some of the greatness and the glory of God. And that's what's happening with the sun. So David isn't saying, if we came to him and said, David, man, you didn't know, but we know now that the sun doesn't rise. Would you like to go back and change that? He'd say, no, I don't want to change that because that's not what I was intending to communicate in the first place, right? And we need to read the scripture rightly. And in what he's doing here is poetically describing what is happening, not trying to be precise and scientific. And it's not the one who created and inspired the book who's off in anything, Right? If, if we're misreading it, if there's contradictions and problems, then the first place we need to look is not with the creator, but with the created. Right? We need to look inward and say, like, I'm probably not understanding this right. The law of the Lord, he says, is perfect. It's whole, it's complete, it's without flaw everywhere we find it. And So if we read it rightly, we will see how it all fits together, how it is all perfect and whole, and, and the, the problems are going to come later, not with the word, but with us. And here's what it does, because it is perfect. It revives the soul. It restores the soul. It brings renewal and refreshing. Now that's the same word that he used in Psalm 23 that we looked at last week. In verse 3, he, the the Lord's shepherd, he restores the soul. You remember, we talked about even the imagery of sheep and shepherd is that all like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. And what does the shepherd do? He restores the soul. The, the law is the means that the shepherd uses to do that. Like the, the law, it reveals God's character, what he's like. His righteousness, his holiness, his justice. It reveals how to live. It reveals those right paths that He's leading us on. It reveals where the green pastures are. How do you follow God? You, you follow God to those green pastures and how He leads beside still waters. So the law reveals His leading and His feeding. It reveals paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Those are the things that restore the soul. The law is perfect, reveals all of this, and it calls for Following the shepherd's right leading and right feeding, and when you do that, you're on the restorative path. That's the path to reviving, refreshing. Restoration, it's the shepherd Lord who restores the soul, the deepest part of our lives, the inner man. And verse 7 is showing us the means of restoration, the means of this deep and inner renewal. It is the law of God. Brief glimpses into Israel's history will show brief pictures of this restoration that he brings. Think about the time during the kings where most kings are pretty evil and wicked and there's only a few that pop up on the radar during Israel's hard history that actually receive God's word and try to live and lead in such a way that would bring honor and glory to it. Josiah is one of those people. He Remember, he discovers God's word. He hears it and he repents and he leads the people in repentance. And what happens during his time, even though they're on the brink of of exile, what happens during their time is a brief period and time of restoration. You look at the same after exile, Ezra and Nehemiah and those folks that have been faithful come back to the promised land. They come back to this place where they had to leave because of their sin. And what do they do when they get there? At least part of what they do. They have all kinds of struggles. We, we've talked about Ezra and Nehemiah before, but they go to God's word. And what it does for them is it convicts them of sin. There's weeping, there's mourning, but it also turns them in joy to like what God has done is amazing here because He's been faithful to every bit of His promises. And here we are standing as He said we would be. It brings about a time of restoration. When they only had experienced exile. That's what God's Word does. Are you like a sheep and still astray? Perhaps you feel as if you're in a dry land. There's no water or no food, just a dry place. I'm not revived at all, I'm shriveling up and drying out myself. Well, God's Word is the means of renewal and reviving and refreshing. Remember what Psalm 1 said? Blessed is the man, not the one who walks in his own way or in the way of wickedness. What's the blessed life? What's the the life that's happy? What's the good life that God offers to us? It's found where? In the Word of God. And in meditating on that Word day and night, like making it a part of life, that's reviving, that's refreshing. What sheep gets to rest? The, The sheep gets to rest that's the one who is Following the lead of the Lord's shepherd, who's listening and hearing to him and letting him lead and feed them. There's life there and restoration there. The formula continues in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple testimony is linked to even the ten words, the ten commandments that we see in the book of Exodus. And so he's saying again, like God's word, his testimony. It is sure, it is trustworthy, it always proves true. It, it, it speaks to reality, to how things actually are in this life. You know, you're not going to turn to it and it's going to pull the wool over your eyes to actually how things are in the world. That's not what's going on. And so when God comes and he says to Adam and Eve, don't eat that tree because when you eat it, you will surely die. And when Satan comes and he says, you can eat it, you won't surely die. Only one of them is telling the truth there. Only one of their testimonies is trustworthy and sure. And what did they do? They took, and they ate, and death started. And God says of His Word that it's sure, it's trustworthy. And when God's people act according to it and in line with God's Word, they can always expect it to prove itself true a long history of God saying here's all these promises he's not ashamed to put a bunch of promises out there and a bunch of big promises out there because he knows he's going to fulfill every last word of them and so he comes in the new testament and says like hey you can look back at all the promises i made and you can find their yes and amen in jesus christ his word is trustworthy it is true so what testimony are you trusting what what word are you looking to as a sure word God's word is trustworthy and it gives real wisdom. When it's heard and when it's applied, it gives real wisdom. Making wise the simple. Or in verse 8, it continues to to say the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Right. He's speaking even morally. They're morally right. They're upstanding. They're completely clean. His words are never immoral, never inappropriate. God never has to make edits to this thing. He doesn't have to go back and like, wait a second, we're in a new time now, things have shifted, I better edit this. No, that's what other books do. Holy books do do that. Not this holy book. Not God's Word. It doesn't ever have to do that. That that is such a needed reminder for God's people then, when they're looking around them and their gods keep changing things up. Like, here I wanted this. They thought this God wanted this, but now he seems like he's changed his mind because things are bad for us. They kept having to do that over and over again. God's people didn't have to do that. God's Word kept bringing them back to know, like, what did I tell you? What have I said? Do those things. Because this word doesn't need to be edited. Like, it's right fully and completely. No matter what surrounding nations and cultures may say, how they may oppose or disagree, you can know that this word is right. You want to live with a clear conscience? Don't give it over to the prevailing culture and the prevailing nations around you. Now, present it to the Lord and live according to His word. And you will find that that conscience is always rightly following things that God has laid in it. Pure commandments. They're unmixed. They're not tainted with something that we need to go back and edit. And what they do is they help people walk, not in darkness, but in the light, because they know how to live. And God's not confused on how this works out best so you want to navigate the world without stumbling around, trying to figure out how to live with all the things that are swirling and all the different messages that we're receiving. Here's how you live. You live according to this word. Because this word is right. And, and what it can do is when you're walking around and you're not stumbling in the darkness, like, I don't appreciate stumbling in the darkness. That hurts. Walking in the light, I can rejoice in the middle of that knowing that I can see things clearly. My path ahead of me is clear. There's rejoicing for your heart in following these things from the Lord. Now, it's at this point uh, that the, the, the formula shifts a bit. Complementary shift, but still a shift in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So the shift is now, he hasn't referenced a word, the law of God. He speaks of the fear of the Lord, but complimentary, You can see the fear of the Lord is right, rejoice, or the fear of the Lord is right, enduring forever. It's, or the fear of the Lord is clean, sorry. Clean and thinking about pure and right connect so closely together. But the fear of the Lord here, right? The fear of the Lord it is, like we, we can get so off on this. It's an affectionate awe of God. It's certainly reverence, but it's, it's adoring reverence of God. It's a drawing near to Him. I, I think this is. Uh, Shown so well in the book of Hosea, chapter 3. Here's what God says. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Notice a few words there. They're going to they have this fear of the Lord, but they're seeking the Lord. They have this fear of the Lord, but they come to the Lord. And even the word fear to, they fear to the Lord and to his goodness. This isn't a fear that that is a a, a running away. Like that's what you should do when there's danger. If there's a lion outside, you you fear in the right way and you run the other direction. When you fear the Lord, you actually fear to him. That's the right fear of the Lord. And here's what he says in verse 9, that's clean. Those are words of ritual purity. Like in Leviticus, they had to make sure that everything, we are going to label things clean and unclean. Why? Because only the clean can come before God. Only the clean can come to God. Can move toward God. And here's what Psalm 9, or 19 9 says. That the fear of the Lord is clean. And this is why it endures forever. All the other things, if they were unclean, they're, they're not going to endure, not before the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is the thing that endures forever. He goes on to say in verse 9, back to the kind of the original formula with rules, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And one author summarizes all of these things well when he says together, all these terms show the practical purpose of revelation to bring God's will to bear on the hearer and evoke intelligent reverence, well-founded trust, detailed obedience. That the word of God. His testimony, his laws, his precepts, his commandments, his rules are infinitely practical for us. It's these descriptions and these characteristics of what God's word is and what God's word does that lead David to to gushing about this word in poetic language again in verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. If God's special revelation, if His word is what He said it was in verses 7 through 9, then how does does anyone receive it the way they're supposed to? Because my guess is that's not always your experience. Like, do you wake up every morning and open God's Word and like, wow, my soul is revived? I hope you do sometimes. I'm, I'm guessing that sometimes it just seems like words. It does for me at times. I open the Word of God and I read it and it just seems like words. Or maybe you're thinking, I, I need wisdom for a situation and you open it up and... And you hear something from God's word that that seems to be completely different. Like, I need wisdom for my parenting. And yet God's law seems to be talking about clean and unclean things. And I'm not sure about the connection. How is this making me wise? And so how do we get to the the receiving of the actions of verses 7 through 9? If God's word is these things, how does it do these things in our lives? And I think verses 10 and 11 help us greatly. They poetically aid us in this quest, right? In this search. And he does it with these words, gold and honey. What these words do is they show immense value. These are valuable things. They show immense worth. They they weren't everywhere. Not everyone had them in plenty. They weren't just everywhere to be found and, and no problem finding them. They are valuable things. They show the worth of God's word. And they show this for a reason. That it might be desired and sought after. Those words themselves capture that, right? More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Like, they are to be desired and sought. God's word should be more valuable in our sight to us than gold, more desirable than than the sweetness of honey. And so we need to ask ourselves about the value question. Do we value God's word like that? Does it it come to us as more valuable than gold? Does it uh, come to us as something that is sweeter than honey? Like maybe you've made your your 2024 plans and you've set them out and you got your budget in place, you got your diet in place, but I'm going to ask you, what about the things that are way more valuable than that? What about God's Word? Has it made it into the plan of your life? Has it factored into what you're going to do and how you're going to live like it is meant to and it is more valuable than any of those things like make a budget that's fine go on a diet sure like paul says of physical training it has some value so like there you go all right there's some value but this has a value for all things like it endures forever and so is this part of your planning because it's a part of what you value and think is the most worthy thing for your life is god's word factoring into this If verses 7 through 11 are true, then you need to make sure you have a plan for that word in your life. It would be foolish if these things are true to neglect it. If it's more valuable than gold, then we need to reflect that by giving as much thought and strategy and time to thinking about this word in our lives as we do to gold, money, finances. If it's sweeter than honey... Then we need to reflect that by desiring it as much as our late night ice cream or whatever your thing is. Gold and honey, they, they speak to the value and worth. They also give us a little bit of how. How do we do this? How do we see it and receive it as valuable? How do we see it and receive it as sweeter than honey? Notice the, the, the words like gold. Honey, these were things for them that were not manufactured. They were things that they couldn't just like, let's put our heads together and figure out how to make these. At that time, you didn't find these things. I mean, you didn't come up with them on your own. You found them. You discovered them. You went out and got them. That is gold and honey. You had to dig. You had to taste. And that's getting at what he wants for us from us for his word. That's it. You got to dig. You've got to taste to prioritize and to value and to see the glory of God in His Word. You're going to have to dig for it. It's going to take some work. You might have to put the gloves on. You might have to grab a shovel at times, and it feels like I'm wanting wisdom and reviving, but I just keep digging, and it's not there. And we need to know that it's more valuable than gold, so I'm going to keep digging because it is surely there. we got to dig. We've got to work. we got to taste. You take a bite, chew it. And just linger on it, trying to get every single note of it. If we know where gold is, it's folly not to dig there. Right? If if we know that there I mean, if I know that there's a fresh cookie out of the oven, it's gonna be hard for me not to want to snatch that cookie up, right? And that's what he's getting at. Don't don't leave the hot cookie on the on the counter when you could be enjoying its sweetness in your life. So it's not just the low valuing of God's word that's folly, but the neglect of God's word. And God's people should be people who both treasure God's word greatly and taste of it often, who dig, who taste over and over again, who linger so that they might see the glory of God there that they might receive some of the actions that he says here, the reviving of our souls, the making wise of us as they are simple, the rejoicing of our heart, the enlightening of our eyes, and that we might have something that endures forever and is righteous altogether. That's the kind of people we need to be. We're going to have to dig. We're going to have to taste. General revelation, it declares the glory of God in order to trace it back to God, but it's not exhaustive. God's special revelation comes along, and it's needed, Then it comes along, and it says treasure this, taste this, take it in. And one author said that God hath revealed not only his being, but some sparks of his eternal power and godhood in his works, as well in his word, and both are needed for us. We need to trace and taste. We need to read the book of Revelation uh, in God's word and read the book of Revelation in creation and take them both together. These two books belong together. They're meant to be read together. And what they do when they are is they expose every single one of us. They don't just get read. that They read. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. In light of the revelation that he says is in creation, that's declaring the glory of God, in light of the revelation that's in the word of God in verses 7 through 11, in all that it is and all that it does, he, he doesn't say, wow, I'm awesome. He pleads for mercy. In, in light of revelation, he pleads to God for mercy. Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. That's his prayer to God in light of revelation. I think that Paul reflects this somewhat in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. He's been overwhelmed with the glory of God somewhat. And so this is why he's asking this. And he says, it's required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Like Here's all these places that I could go for judgment. Corinthians, human court, even myself. And what does he say? I'm not aware of anything against myself. Does that mean you're, you're clear? No. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He knows who he's going to answer to, and in light of that, he's appealing not to these human courts, but to God. And David has a sense of this, and he responds, not with a denial, I haven't done anything wrong, or there's nothing wrong with me, No, not a denial of reality, but with a confession and a plea for mercy, a recognition of his own sin and a need for God here. Declare me innocent from my hidden faults that he is implying are surely there. He reads the word in creation. He reads the word in God's divine special revelation, and it reads him. And it leads him to this conclusion declare me innocent. It doesn't lead him to the conclusion I am innocent. All right reading of God's word, of God's special revelation, all right reading even of general revelation is going to lead to this conclusion. Something's off. I'm not right before what I'm seeing here. You think about those in Scripture, and they're all through Scripture, who read God's word and are read by God's word. They all go to the same conclusion. It's always the same when they get revealed to them the glory and greatness of God, they they go to this conclusion. I need His help. I am not innocent. Think about Isaiah. He gets to see a vision of the Lord holy and lifted up. And he gets to hear creation, angels, seraphim, (laughs) crying out who this God is, that He is holy, holy, holy. And the first thing that He does in light of that is, woe is me. Not, this is awesome that I'm here. Uh, I'm undone. Because I'm guilty. Paul does the same thing. He gets a divine revelation from God and he knows, I'm the chief of sinners. The more glory that we see in creation and in special revelation, that the more sin is going to start showing up. And it's a really humbling thing for all the people in the scripture and they see more glory, they're more and more humbled. Humility seems to follow the, the revelation of God's glory like a shadow. Everywhere God's glory is, there's humility following behind it. And if you're not in that... Shadow, you're you're not humble. And it shows, every single one of those authors would probably say, yeah, it's worse than I even thought. And the closer I got to God's glory and seeing his greatness, the worse it appeared to be. And yet verse 12 helps, doesn't it? Because what does he do in verse 12? Notice where he runs for refuge. What does he do... With knowing, not I'm innocent, but I need him to declare me innocent. He runs where? For refuge. Who does he plead to for mercy? He doesn't go to the hilltop. He doesn't go to any other part of creation or a created thing. Where does he go? He goes to the Lord. He doesn't go even to the Word, thinking... In this thing itself, their salvation. He goes to the one who wrote that word. He goes to the Lord. And when God's revelation is read, and when it reads us and exposes us, which it will to all of us who fall short of the glory of God, it will reveal to us His greatness and His pointing to Him, and it will show us to have fallen short. And what it's meant to do is draw us to Him. We're to fear toward Him not away from him. It is exposing us all and it reveals to us who God is and what he's like. And so when we go to his word and we see this God revealed, what is revealed about this God? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. He's this God who's revealed this way, not in general revelation. We need special revelation for this who's revealed this way so that when we see this glory of God we see our sin, we don't run away from him, but we run to him for refuge, as David does. That is exactly what God wants. That's why he puts these things in his word. Think about the nature of putting this out there, that he would show us as sinners, not so that we would see how bad we are, but so that we would run to him. That's why he's exposing it. That's what God does. He doesn't just want to put out his, his general revelation, and special revelation to show everyone how great he is. He, he wants that, but he also wants that so that we might enjoy his excellencies and his glory, so we might be wrapped up and caught up in relationship with him. This is why he created all things in the first place. This is the end and the purpose for which he's created all things, the glory of God. He wants us to enjoy these things. He wants relationship with us. And that only happens when run, one runs to him. When we're not innocent, when we seek refuge from him. And that's what David continues, looking to verse 13. He's calling out to God, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Presumptuous sins here, those are sins that are known to be what they are. He understands the nature of these things, that this is wicked, this is evil, and he still walks in it. Known and not cared about, that's presumptuous sin. And David says, man, I could do that. That's in me. That's in this heart that I want you to work on and to declare innocent and to keep back from some things because my heart will go to those things and I need you to keep me back from that. That's in me is what he's saying here in verse 13. And so what does he do recognizing the glory of God and his falling short of the glory of God? In light of that, what does he do with it? He turns to the Lord and he asks for help. He's running to him for refuge again. God, help me in the middle of this. I I need you to help me because that's the only way I can avoid this because it's pulling me and I can't avoid this without your help. He doesn't deny his sinful nature. He doesn't deny that that's in him and act like I'm okay and we're all kind of good by nature. He doesn't do any of that. He says, you're going to have to keep me back from this, God. Hold on to me. He doesn't deny sinful nature. He doesn't overestimate his power. He turns to the Lord. The one he says can hold him back and let sin not have dominion over him. And then he says, Then all shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. One author says, commentator says, that these statements make clear that when David speaks of being blameless, he refers not to sinless perfection resulting from perfect obedience. Rather, David sees blamelessness arising from confession of private sin that leads to God mercifully acquiring him of Acquitting him, I have acquiring him, I hope I don't have that up there. Acquitting is the word of guilt and restraining from outrageous behavior. This is what the Lord wants, not like deny these things or think about how great and powerful you are, but turn to me and the path to righteous living, the right paths of life are not void of confession and repentance. Actually, they're full of confession and repentance. That is the path to life. And in this way, what David is doing is he's turning to the Lord and showing his trust in him, saying, you're gonna have to keep me back from this. This is in me and I need your help. That's the path of life. That's the path of faith. David trusts him for that. In verse 14, he says, in conclusion, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The, the law, his, he's drawing a conclusion from all these things. He's noticing the law on God's word, it, it never has demanded of him only outward obedience and outward actions and behavior. He looks at this word and this word looks at him. He reads the word and it reads him and here's what he needs in light of this word that is reading him. He's like, I'm gonna need you to cleanse me on the inside and on the outside. He, he doesn't look at it and say like, it's okay to just perform. And that behavior is okay. If I just follow these rules, then everything is fine. That's not what the word of God ever does. So David asked, I need external help. I, I, I have words that come out of my mouth that need to be altered, and, and I need something to happen in my heart because its meditations are often wayward as well. And so he asked for help, both internal and external help. Why? Because he knows that both inner and outer matter and that the only place for those things to get fixed are, are where, who's he calling out to? Who's he asking for help from? He's, he's calling out to the Lord. And what is, his, what is his aim? What's his desire? To please God, that I might be pleasing to you. And how can you please God? You're going to need a heart that's fixed. You're going to need some actions that are fixed because your heart is fixed. You need all of those things. And so he turns to the Lord, and he says these interesting words, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That's, that's specific language. That's, that's the language of sacrifice. That's, that's the language used of offerings. And that's what David's saying. I want my life, in and out, to be offered to you. And when it's offered to you, I want it to please you. I want it to come up to you as a pleasing aroma in your sight. His goal is to be acceptable and pleasing to God. And so what does he do with that desire to offer his whole self to God? He says, he's calling out to God, Oh Lord, my rock my redeemer. If I'm going to do those things, if I'm going to be pleasing to you, then I'm going to need you to be my rock, my strength, the thing that actually supports me in the midst of this, and I'm going to need you to redeem me because I haven't done this thing perfectly and I need some stuff fixed. He doesn't turn to his own inward strength. Like, I'm going to just do this. I'm the king after all. Why not? Like, I, I have God's word written and I can just figure it out and I'll walk this thing out. He doesn't turn to inward strength. He doesn't say, you know what? I've kept this thing pretty well. Surely acceptable to God. He says, no, Lord, you're rock and you're redeemer and I need you to fix some things in order for me to be pleasing to you. And he takes us, in verse 14, where revelation always takes us. It leads us all there. It never takes us to this place of thinking I am great, I am big, I can do this. Because revelation, rather in creation or in God's word, is always showing the glory of God. And when we see the glory of God, it exposes us all as smaller... As those who are in need and who are wanting, like you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't leave thinking I'm great and big. You don't look up into the night sky and think, "Wow, I'm six foot, whatever. Like I can bench three hundred. This must be aw- I must be awesome." It leads us to thinking that He is awesome. God, in His general revelation and His special revelation, puts His glory and excellencies on display, not just to show off, but that We might enjoy Him in relationship to Him as His people. And the path to that enjoyment of His excellencies and His greatness and glory is through confession of our sin, turning away from our sin, and looking to the Lord for help as the one who is our rock and our redeemer. And when the Lord does that, when He shows up as the one who is revealed as rock and redeemer, the response is, rightly, from those people who know him as such, here's my life. It belongs to you. Inward and outward, it is all yours. I couldn't hold anything back from you and your greatness and your glory. And the response is, I want it to be pleasing to you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim to please God. That's the response of God's people to the greatness and glory of God. We know that the Confession is the right path because 1 John tells us, right? If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. We know that there's help from the Lord to be our rock and our redeemer because we see the glories and the greatness of God in the face of Jesus Christ who walked this thing out perfectly, who died sacrificially, who rose again victoriously and and raised and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we can see the glory of God in the face of of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, and who he is and what he has done. And so we can know that there's help from the Lord to accomplish this living sacrifice kind of thing because he is our rock and, his, and our redeemer. And in light of his mercies to come and to give his life as a sacrifice that we might live, there's the only reasonable response to that in light of his mercies is to say, here's my life as a living sacrifice to you. Use it for whatever you want. I want to please you. When we go to Psalm 19 and we end, that's where David ends. That's where we need to end. And so a response to him is saying, here I am. What that looks like, practically, he's obeying the word that he's given to us. One of those things that he's given to us is together. When you get together, is you take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that reminds us, it looks back, of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf that we couldn't get there on our own, but he had to come and redeem it reminds us of what's present right now because he's displayed his glories in the face of Jesus. We can be in relationship with God right now. We can start enjoying his excellencies and his glories right now in relationship to him. And it, looks, it makes us look forward. It says, You need to do this, but you won't always. Because I'm coming back. And then one day, we're going to do this a little bit differently in the end. So this is a meal for those who have trusted fully in Jesus, who are looking to him as their Lord, their rock, and their redeemer. And they take this meal in great anticipation of what he will do because of what he has done and is doing. If you're not a believer, we we say, don't take this meal. and said, take Jesus. Believe in him. Trust in him. Look to him as your rock and your redeemer. Let's pray as we prepare for this meal.
2: Jesus, we offer up our lives to you. We pray that you would take them and let them be consecrated unto you. I pray, God, that you would take our time. We've been challenged today to stop and to look at you and to listen to you through Both of your books. Thank you for not leaving us without knowledge of who you are. Thank you for not leaving us to wonder what you are like and what you want from us. You've spoken. You are speaking all the time through the things that have been made. I pray that we would stop and watch the sun come up or watch the sun go down or look at the clouds and that we wouldn't just say that's beautiful, but that we would truly trace the beam back to the source and give you glory and just delight in it, just delight in, in the world that you've made and in the people that you've put around us that you made in your image who also were created to reflect your glory, Lord, you are speaking loudly. And we take it for granted and we don't pay attention and we just keep our eyes on the road or keep our thoughts elsewhere, Lord. Get our attention in your creation. You are worthy of it. Give us ears to hear, Lord. And we also, we want to give you our time in your spoken word, in your word, Lord. We want you to expose us and delight us. At the same time, Lord, protect us from neglecting your word, protect us from uh, going to your word half-heartedly and not prayerfully where we're just looking at words on a page. Lord, but I pray there we would have ears to hear you as well every day that we would open up your word and see who you are and remember who we are and what you have done for us and what you want to do in us today and tomorrow and the next day. Lord, you are so gracious. We know we can't just try hard or do better this year. Uh, We need to make a plan, but we also, with David, we cry out and say, please help us do what we wanna do. Help us be who you want us to be. The power has to come from you, Lord. And so we cry out to you as our rock and as our redeemer. And we pray that our words and our thoughts and our deeds will be pleasing to you because we are listening to your word and responding rightly to it, Jesus. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Thank you for covering our sin and giving us grace and mercy. We rejoice in your death for our sins and your resurrection unto new life. And we look forward to following you in that one day, Jesus. Amen.